Welcome to MicroCollege, a podcast exploring innovative, place-based, and humanly scaled responses to the crises in higher education, meaning, and discourse in our time. Everyone knows that colleges and universities are at a breaking point, but what can be done? I'm Jacob Hunt, the director of Thoreau College, a microcollege in Viroqua, Wisconsin. Join us each week as we tackle this question head on. Welcome to MicroCollege. Um, today on the podcast, we are thrilled to have as our guest, Lena Rachel Anderson, who is one of the, the really, the person who wrote the book about the, the Danish folk high school movement and the concept of Bildung, um, a person that has been inspiring to me and to this, the, our projects here in Viroqua for some time. So it's, it's, a, real, it's a real honor. Um, Lena Rachel Anderson is an economist, an author, a futurist, and a Bildung activist. She has been a screenwriter for television comedy and also has pursued higher education in theology. She's written many books in Danish and several in English as well. In 2017, she published The Nordic Secret with Thomas Björkman, which describes the concept of Bildung, the history of the Scandinavian folk high school movement, and its impact on the development of the Nordic societies. Subsequently, she's published several more books in English and founded the think tank Nordic Bildung and the Global Bildung Network. Thank you for joining us, Lena. Well, thank you for inviting me. Great to be here. And thank you for your work. Like I said, this is this is a, a book that I've your, your Nordic secret and just the concepts that you're sharing are ones that I've I've tried uh, I've spread as wide as possible. Um, we're speaking to you today. Um, we're recording this on November the eighth, which is Election Day here in the United States. Um, it is a, a day that has started to be a time of anxiety for a lot of Americans, um, and which is unfortunate. And I think the concepts and the history that you you are, are sharing and you've written about and are talking about are ones that are really important for for our country and uh, and for the world right now. Um, so yeah, this feels very timely. Um, I guess on, well, on, well, those those are big words, but uh, but yes, it is a crucial topic. Yeah. Um, we we like to to ground our conversations here in people's biographies. So um, on on the podcast. So I'm wondering if if we could get started. If you could share a little bit about your your own background and especially what you were doing when you were 18, 19, 20 years old. Where were you? What were the big influences on your development in that period of your life? <laughs> well, so as you already mentioned, I uh, I'm in Denmark. I'm Danish. I did not go to one of the Danish folk high schools because when I was 18, I was in high school, actually. The Danish high school is, is a little bit later uh, than in the U.S., so we have nine mandatory years in, in primary school, and then from 16 to 19 is, is typically the high school. And then a lot of young people take a gap year. But I was so fed up with anything that had the name school in it, and I I really longed to just go out and work and be with some adults. So I actually uh, took a gap year where I tried to write for a music magazine that did not work very well, but I, I produced local radio, actually the first commercial uh, radio station uh, in Denmark opened in 1984, local radio station, and they played pop music and stuff like that. And so in my gap year, I produced a Christmas satire, um, and um, and then I I did some uh, local radio and did a a music um, a documentary on radio also, and then I realized that just 
having a high school diploma is not going to get you any kind of interesting job. So I had to study something else. And then after my gap year, I um, I studied business economy for three years, and then I worked for two years. And then I, because <clears throat> I couldn't, I couldn't really see myself in the corporate business world. And I, after my my bachelor's degree in business economy, I I worked as a temp secretary for two years. So I, because I hoped that I was going to find a place, the a business, an industry, a, a, a kind of job that that uh, appealed to me, and I didn't, and and so I decided to study theology and write comedy for television because that was the, what I really wanted to do, and so from I was what was that 25 to my early 30s when I was around 30, <clears throat> I uh, I freelanced as a satire writer, a comedy writer for Danish radio and television, and I took a trip, a couple of trips, several trips actually to the United States and um, met with people in the TV industry and uh, got to know people and see how you produce uh, TV shows in the U.S., and one of my really formative um, experiences when I was so I was actually 26 when that happened. Was when I I was in the U.S. Uh, for the first time, and I took a language course to improve my English. And I went there very much a Dane with a very strong Danish identity. I really loved it. It was in California for five weeks in Long Beach, and I've I've always had a good time in the U.S. But I realized that I was not American. I was European. So I, I went to the U.S. Dane and returned as a European, and so so it really did something to my sense of self and my my sense of of identity and and where I'm coming from. But I also realized that there is a, a Western civilization, there is a, a bond um, between Europe and the United States that is incredibly strong, and and uh, we have exchanged so much culture, pop culture. Um, academic research and all kinds of things, the way that we've built our institutions and, and our history are totally intertwined. So um, at least the, the colonial part of <laughs> North American history, but um, <clears throat> but there is, a, there, is a, there is a strong bond there and I, I really enjoyed being in the US, so I, I learned a lot from that. I would say before um, this in my 20s, so in my teen years, you asked about when I was 18, um, I, I think it was the struggle to fit in and the realization that I just needed to do something outside the formal education system because the formal education system and everything that I was presented with in school was not enough. I, I needed to be creative. I needed to work with more adult people than the other 18 to 19-year-olds that I <clears throat> was kind of stuck with in school. Um and so, so that was the facing the need to do something other than than what what people were actually expecting from me. I think that was that was the struggle and the pushback that forced me to decide what it was that I really wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. So thank you for thank you for your story there. That is uh, there's there's a lot to to pick up on then um, uh, in that story. Um, I think you you are a person who's you've built this really robust um, 
theory of change in history, your story about, about, about the history in Denmark and Scandinavia and the concept of Bildung. And it's very interesting to, to hear a story in which it took you a while to get to that, right? Many, many different uh, experiments and different, different kind of paths that leading to, to, to a, a life as a writer and a thinker and a public speaker uh, with having a real impact on the world. Then you've just you've just shared your story really you know through your late teens and, and into into your thirties. Um, I think maybe this is could be a good time for you to um, so you you've developed in your writing and your in your in your studies of of the Danish folk school movement and the history around that this concept of Bildung, which arises out of the out of the German Romantic movement and the and the post Enlightenment period. Maybe could you could you share your your understanding your 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 definition of that term? Sure. So, I uh, I mean, I've, I've used the Danish word for Bildung since I don't know when. It's, it's very, it's a very common concept in, in Denmark, but not everybody actually knows very much. I mean, do not have a very deep understanding or theoretical understanding of it, but there is this understanding in the general population that it's more, that it is more than education. So, uh Education, what you learn in school, the transfer of knowledge is um, is not enough. That's not all that we need to get out of going to school. We also need to get Bildung. And then what is Bildung? And there is usually a very vague understanding of it, which is that it's something about you know being socialized into your local community, into the class with your peers that you're in, and it's about uh, enculturation, formation, and all kinds of you know elements that go into it and and so it's a very common term and a very common concept that people talk about so i've i've known this expression this this word for i guess as long as i've been interested in or not interested in going to school but it it it's a very common concept in denmark um but when i when i started looking uh into bildung from a more researched and uh structured uh, point of view, and when I started researching the, the Nordic Secret, I realized that among these German philosophers, particularly uh, the German philosopher Friedrich Schiller, there was a very sort of um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say yeah well defined, but not so well defined that you can grade it. <laughs> so you can't say you get like an A or an F in your Bildung, but it's still so concrete that we can talk about it. And what Friedrich Schiller said was that there are three different kinds of people. And it's basically a developmental process, but he looked at the people around him, and he wrote this in the 1790s. And so he looked around him and, and, and saw three kinds of people, or at least he could group them into three different kinds of people. And the first kind of person was the emotional person. So the person who is... Um, stuck in or defined by his emotion or her emotions. So it's the person who um, cannot transcend his or her emotions and, and thereby this person is not free because the emotions are just going to decide for him or her. But you can transcend these emotions by internalizing the norms of society. He didn't say it exactly like that because he wrote in the 1790s and he wrote it in German. But what he saw was that there were people who had turned the moral norms of society <clears throat> into their own norms and, and moral norms. So uh, expectations of other people turned them into their own expectations about themselves. And so they were constantly uh, living up to, to 
to the norms and values of society or or had you know instead of having values and norms they were had by the values and norms so mm-hmm. to speak and and when when you live your life like that and you constantly are actually had by your own norms or the norms of society you're not free either so you can transcend that by reconnecting with your emotions and become the free person um and and you become the free person by then being able to feel your own emotions and also having internalized the norms of society. And by the way, Friedrich Schiller called this kind of middle position of having internalized the norms of society, the rational person. So the person who has internalized the rationale of society. And when you have inside yourself both uh, your own emotions and can feel them and the rationale of society, the moral norms of society, then you very often end up in a conflict between should I follow my emotions or should I follow what the norms say? And that is when you're free because then you can choose between the two. And the interesting thing about this is that Schiller connects this to who can handle emotional freedom. And he says the person who is in the throes of his or her emotions cannot handle political freedom because if there is a riot, or an insurrection uh, and people running towards the capital in Washington. He didn't even mention that he was talking about the French Revolution, but same, same. Um, they just follow their emotions and follow the people with the strongest emotional expression, and so they're not free to say stop or do the right thing. The middle group of people, the rational people, or the people who follow the rationale of society and who take their guidance from other people, they're just going to look at the other people who are creating a riot and think, oh, so that is what we're doing now. This is probably the right thing to do because everybody else is doing it. And so they cannot handle political freedom either. The only people, according to Friedrich Schiller, who can handle political freedom are the free people, the people who can feel their own emotions and who have internalized the norms and the moral values of society and who can hold them up towards each other, against each other, and choose between them and say, maybe rioting is not what what we're supposed to do. Maybe I feel, you know, um, cheated by the politicians. Maybe I feel that the world is unjust. Maybe I feel that things are going the wrong way. But rioting is not the right thing to do. The right thing to do is to follow the rules of this society and make the changes within those rules, within the rule of law and within the the rules that we have. And Friedrich Schiller wrote this during a, uh, it was a feudal society, there was no political freedom. Um, <clears throat> but what had happened in 1789 and earlier than that, the American Revolution, that was actually the European philosophers on the European bourgeoisie, they were looking so much to uh, towards the United States and thinking, we want what they got. And then the French had the revolution in, in 1789, and it ate, ended in a bloodbath. And all those hopes of political freedom in Europe just turned into frustration and despair and uh, a fear that maybe we cannot handle political freedom in Europe. Maybe there is no alternative, viable, peaceful alternative to the feudal society and this uh, authoritarian um, 
tyranny under which we live in Europe. And so, and that is when, when Friedrich Schiller started thinking about this in the early 1790s, saying, okay, so why could the French not handle political freedom? Why did they succeed in the United States? Uh, he, he doesn't really mention that, but it's it's obvious that the, the American Revolution became, became, was before the French. Um, but, but it was a shock that the French could not handle political uh, freedom. So, so he came up with this analysis that said we have these three kinds of people, and one group of people cannot handle it because they're just in the throes of their emotions. Another group of people cannot handle it because they do what the most emotional people do. And then there is the, the group of free people, and they can handle it. And how do we get more free people who can stand up for the values of society and still think for themselves and feel for themselves and have an inner inner struggle about what is the actual right thing to do? And this is Bildung. <laughs> the, the, the process of moving from being the emotional person to the rational person to the free person is a Bildung process. And the result is Bildung. So, so that was how he um, explored Bildung and explained Bildung. And, and his concept of Bildung had a huge impact in Denmark because among the people who designed not the Danish folk high schools, which become the folk schools or that are inspiring the, the folk schools in the United States, but the people who create the first legislation for the public schools in Denmark, so for the kids between the age of 7 and 14, a group of people around the Danish crown prince, Frederick VI, who was, uh, his father was actually formerly still the king, but he was insane and was mostly occupied with masturbating. But so, so <laughs> Frederick VI. And, and, and can you just ground us in, in the timeline now? Which, prince. Um, when was he this? worked with, uh, with a group of people who were creating a, a new school legislation, and then they were in correspondence with Friedrich Schiller. And so this whole concept of Bildung is deeply ingrained in the public school system in Denmark since. 1814, and then later when the uh, folk high schools were invented, the same idea of building and personal development, emotional and moral development was behind it, and that was uh, very much inspired by the Danish theologian and philosopher Grundvik, who um, who was inspired by, by Friedrich Schiller. So, so this has a, a this is a very solid foundation under under both the Danish public schools for kids and these folk high schools for young adults. Wow, that's thank you for that that really rich summary there. The Driftless Folk School, located in the beautiful rolling hills and valleys of Southwest Wisconsin, is a community of lifelong learners dedicated to cultivating personal and cultural resilience through hands-on educational experiences. The Driftless Folk School offers classes in agriculture, land stewardship, natural history, folk arts and crafts, herbalism, wilderness skills, and more. For further information on the Driftless Folk School, visit us at driftlessfolkschool.org on the World Wide Web. Um, so, yeah, the the in your in your writing, you point out the the etymological origin of the word Bildung comes from the word picture or image. 
Um, and and you, you write that, you know, originally this is maybe referring to the image of Christ. It's a Christian image. Um, and then what you've just laid out for us is this image of a free human being, right? A, 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 a picture of, of what moral maturity, of what real you know, we want people to be like if, if they are to be free individuals. Um, and it's, it's really, it's remarkable to, to hear a story of, of that, uh, a picture being, being coming to be shared by a whole society as, as, as happened in, in Denmark. Um, we know about the French Revolution because it went badly wrong, right? Bloodbath. And we, many people don't know about Denmark and, and the other Scandinavian countries because it went well, ironically. Um, so I'm wondering if, if you could, you know, you started to talk about, about how these ideas came into Denmark, but maybe could you just paint a picture for, for us about what, what was Denmark like in the early 19th century? What type of society was it that these ideas were coming into? Right. So around 1800, not just Denmark, but also Norway, Sweden, and Finland were most uh, poor, among the poorest countries in Europe. Um, and the, the poor countries in Europe were those four Nordic countries. It was Portugal, Spain, Greece, Italy, and Austria-Hungary. And then the rich countries were the, the richest countries were uh, Switzerland, and then there was it was the UK, Germany, Belgium, Netherlands, and France. And they were industrialized, and they were industrializing early, and so uh, there, I found some numbers for the GDP per capita in the 1800s, and so they went into this amazing, you know, economic development from 1800 and onwards. And the four Nordic uh, countries, Iceland was a part of, of Denmark back then, um, remained poor until 1850-ish, along with Italy and, and Greece and the other poor countries. But then we got uh, we got railways, but other parts of Europe got that as well. And then we started doing these folk high schools. And what was um, the, the secret behind the, the, Nordic, <laughs> the Nordic countries, the, the Nordic secret, is that uh, and I'll get into the pedagogical brilliance of, of the schools uh, in a moment. But what happened was after so the first schools that really figured out how to do it were in um, 1850 and onwards. And 1860 and through the 1870s and onwards until 1900, eventually it became around 10% of the annual cohort in Denmark and also in Norway and Sweden, later in Finland, because they once they got independence in uh, 1918. But in the 1800s, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden got these folk high schools from the 1860s and onwards. And that is when we sort of made a, a class journey, a, an economic journey from the bottom of the European economy to the top. And the three Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, did the journey in 50 years each with 10 years apart, I think. But like over the course of 50 years, we went from being among the poorest countries to becoming among the richest countries. And 10% um, of an annual cohort is a critical number of young people who, um, and this was just, I mean, the, and it was the rural population who went to these folk high schools. So maybe it was about 15% of, of the young people living in, in those small villages. And so what was it that happened at these folk high schools? The first folk high school was actually not a success. <clears throat> it was a two-year program. It was really expensive. It opened in 1844. 
and uh, it was only the richest farmers who could afford to send their sons there, and it it was actually so boring they hated being there, and they learned all kinds of, I don't know, uh, economy and science and agricultural techniques and so forth, and they just hated it. The guy who figured out how to do it right was actually a school teacher, and what he had figured out when he was teaching kids was that whenever he tried to teach them what he was supposed to teach them, they did not pay attention. But when he told them stories, <laughs> they listened. And he could see that they, you know, they paid attention. They, they sort of, they, they woke up. Their eyes were full of energy, and they were like paying attention to what he was saying. His name was Kristen Colt, and. Uh, and there's a little bit of a geopolitical um, uh, circumstances, context that, that needs to be brought into this. So we had a border conflict with Prussia. I'm not going to get into the details, but there was a wave of nationalism in Denmark where we were afraid of losing one-third of the, uh, the country to or more to, to uh, the Prussians. And so there was this fear that our Danish language might disappear, that we would become... Uh, a, a vassal state under a Prussian empire and that we would all be forced to speak in German or something like that. So there was this really strong fear that Denmark might disappear and be conquered by, by, the, by the Germans, the, the Prussians. In the 1848 to 51 war we had with Prussia and then in 1864 we actually got terribly beat um, by Prussia. Um, and because of, we actually did lose one third of, of what is uh, Denmark today to, uh, to Prussia, um, there was this whole wave of what are we gonna do now? What if they come back for the rest? And then they were like, oh, folk high schools, that's what we're gonna have. <clears throat> and this teacher, Kristen Colt, he had started a folk high school in 1851 based on this fear that uh, that we might lose the country to the Germans and that the Danish narrative, the Danish story and this feeling of being Danish would have to be at the core of, of education so that a sense of identity would be at the core of the education, a sense of the story about who we are as a people would have to be at the core of, um, of the education. And, and when I say the word nationalism in in the context of today, we think of it as something that is um, hostile, that is probably militant, that is uh, not politically correct. But what we have to understand is that 200 years ago, and even 150 years ago, the concept of the nation state was the new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when the United States was established and, and you had your revolution and, and, and fight for independence. The sense of being an American was the new big thing. And, and we can't develop that sense of we the people. I mean, your constitution even opens with that, I think. Mm-hmm. We the people. That sense of we the people, uh, that is a cultural product. That is something that comes with education. That is something that comes with building and enculturation and sharing stories and a narrative. And that was what, what Kristen Cole had realized. So if we're gonna keep a, a sense of Danishness and Denmark, 
We need to have storytelling. We need to have a different kind of learning and studying that is based on who we are and, and how we feel about being who we are. And so he started the school in 1851 based on storytelling. And um, apart from inspiring their sense of, of Danishness by telling, either telling as, as just uh, telling a story or by reading heroic novels by one of the Danish uh, romantic writers, his name was um, B.S. Ingeman, uh, by, by reading these stories, heroic stories to the young men in his folk high school, so they were between the age of 18 and 25. He, he caught their attention. He experienced the exact same thing that he had experienced with the kids in the school. So when he told them stories and they sort of lit up and paid attention and felt, oh, I'm going to be one of those big, strong guys in this amazing story, that's when he had their attention. And then he did something that was really radical for 1851. He started asking them questions. And... Mm. 170 years ago, nobody asked a Danish farmhand anything. And then he did something even more radical, perhaps. He allowed them to ask, or he encouraged them to ask him questions. And once they started asking him questions, <clears throat> they were interested in the answer. And then they had a dialogue going, and then he could teach them. And so he said, first enliven, then enlighten. First get them all, you know, interested in something, and then, once they start asking questions, that is when you can enlighten them, that is when you can educate them, that is when you can give them new knowledge and transfer knowledge, because they're interested in the answers. So that was his really, one of his really brilliant ideas behind this folk, first folk high school that was a real folk high school in the sense that we <clears throat> see it today. The other brilliant thing that he did, he did three really brilliant things. So one was the storytelling. The other thing was there were no exams. So you were there because you wanted to learn, not because you wanted a piece of paper or a diploma or anything. Um, and so if you're not interested in learning, you just, you know, don't pay attention and waste your time. But if you're interested in learning, your stay at one of these folk high schools um, can be the most inspiring uh, three to five months of, of your young life. And you can figure out what you want with the rest of your life. You've got time to think about it here. And you can ask these older people who are the teachers what they think. And you can discuss it with them. And you can open your mind and your heart and ask them all kinds of questions. And they can give you literature and books and other kinds of answers to your questions. So that was the second thing. And the third thing was that the schools had to be homey. That first folk high school from 1844 was really too fancy, and the young, some of the young, I mean, they came from the better off families. But but Kristen Cole knew that if he was if he was gonna get the sort of more average, socioeconomically average young farmhands to join the school and actually speak up for himself, the the surroundings, the school itself, could not be intimidating. They should feel at home there and they should feel that they could talk to him as a teacher just as they could uh, confide in their, um, you know, local, um, I would say, use the, the word husband in the in the old sense of the word, I mean, mm -hmm. the, the, the farmer uh, where, where he was a farmhand and where he could perhaps ask for some good advice or, you know, relieve his... Uh, 
his heart and uh, spill the beans and um, <laughs> and ask, uh, you know, sort of more personal um, questions for for personal advice. So so that kind of of intimacy between the the teacher and and the and the students at the folk high schools was was really the, the third thing. And then of course the <clears throat> So 1852, people really had a hard time understanding what is it that this Christian Cole guy does. And what happened to the young men who went there, I mean, they developed a voice, they developed a sense of self, and they developed the self-confidence to speak up for themselves. And because they did all kinds of studying and, and heard all these stories and did reading and they learned math and science and the latest agricultural techniques and so forth, they developed an opinion of their own and they developed not just a voice, but also something to say. And so they went back to the villages and became the, the, the community organizers and, and the young people with a sense of self and, and self-confidence and also the confidence to speak up to perhaps the elders and perhaps even the pastor or the bell ringer um, in the local community. So they made a difference when they came home. And of course, other young people who saw and experienced that would, would think, what happened to this guy? I mean, he left five months ago and you could never hear him say anything. Now he comes back and he talks all the time and it's even impressive what he has to say. And so if they met somebody who'd been to a folk high school, they would be interested in going. Um, but one school with, I don't know, 20 to 30 students doesn't change a country. Um, so a couple of, of more schools started, uh, perhaps one or two per year. And then we got into this next war with uh, Prussia in 1864, and we got uh, really badly beaten by them, and they took half of the peninsula Jutland, and the Danes uh, went into panic and thought, what if they come back for the rest? How are we going to protect ourselves and our Danish language and our Danish identity? Folk high schools. And so in 1865, I think it was like 11 new folk high schools, and the next year 13 new folk high schools opened, and by 1900, 130 folk high schools had opened, and 100 of them had survived, and looking at the um, some of the numbers for how many students were there, some of them had you know room for 20 young people, in the beginning just young men, eventually there were also rather quickly actually schools for young women but they were not co-ed some of them had 40 or 50 perhaps even 60 or 80 students so um yeah i mean if, if they stayed there for three to five months um and you could have sort of two sets of students per year and you had anywhere between 20 and 80 students at a school and you had a hundred of these schools an estimate is that perhaps 6,000 young people per year would go to one of these schools. And so that would very quickly become 10% of the annual cohort, which was around 60,000. Yeah. So that does make a huge change in a, in a small, I mean, would also make a change in a huge country, in a big country. Um, particularly because the young people who went to these schools were from the rural communities and in other parts of Europe, they were still illiterate. In Denmark, they'd already had seven years of school. They'd been working from they were 14 to maybe 18 or 25 at somebody's farm, doing really hard farm work and sleeping, you know, in a room next to the cows or something. 
And then suddenly, <clears throat> by saving up a little bit of money, by having your dad or an uncle help you, or uh, perhaps borrowing some money from, from the farmer you were working for, uh, them knowing that you would come back after five months and know more about agriculture than, than anybody else on the farm, it was actually a very good investment in, in these young people. They would be highly motivated when they went to a folk high school because the alternative would just be more tedious farm work on somebody else's farm. Um, and and two of the things that they actually learned at those folk high schools, which might be very useful even today or attractive, would be to uh, brew better beer and make better cheese. <laughs> so uh, they really learned a lot of practical stuff. Yeah, Th that's a question. You know, people in the United States who have heard about folk schools will have heard of the North American version of these, which are very craft and sort of manual, practical skill-oriented um, programs. And so I think a question that that, um, that comes up is, is how that sort of activity, that sort of part of the curriculum is integrated into the, this, the cultural formation, the questions and stories, and, 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 and the t sort of building that you're talking about um, there. So, I mean, uh, 150 years ago, there was no radio, there was no television, there were no cell phones. Uh, you wouldn't waste your time on Twitter or Facebook. So entertainment was what you did with the people that were around you. Um, and normally, if if you were just um, working on a normal farm, maybe there were the farmer, his wife, a couple of girls in the kitchen, a couple of young guys, farmhands in the stable, then they had their own sons and daughters. So maybe, I don't know, 10 to 15, 20 people on a farm. And you worked all day. It was somebody else's farm. And then in the evening, maybe you were reading the Bible, singing some hymns or songs, uh, maybe telling stories and knitting or fixing stuff, <clears throat> and then you went to bed. But in one of these folk high schools, uh, they did farm work to produce food for, for their own uh, meals at the school, but they had dedicated hours during the day for, for learning, for expanding their mind, and in the evenings they were singing together and they were introduced to new songs. It wasn't just all the old songs and hymns that their parents' generation knew. There were a lot of new songs being composed and, and written uh, because the country was changing, Europe was changing, the world was changing. So there was tons of new culture. So it, it was almost like uh, if you went to one of these folk high schools and learned, I don't know, 50 or 100 new songs, and then you went back to your village, you were the one who who uh, shared the, I don't know, the YouTube video before everybody else, <laughs> and everybody said, I got it from Lena, or I got it from Jacob. Uh, not a YouTube video, but, but one of those new songs that... A meme. <laughs> ...were expressing what it was like to live in that day and age, and not, and not earlier, and, and not uh, a religious song. So um, so the, the, there was a, an integration between studying, working in the field, and of course, when they worked in the field, they were taught all kinds of new things about how do you drain the field, how do you treat the cows better, how do you treat the pigs better, how do you, uh, you know, all you know, diseases uh, for that the animals might have, uh, how do you grow uh, vegetables and all other kinds of stuff better, and as I said, cheeses and beer, so, <clears throat> so they learned all this practical stuff, and then they had I guess, story hour and uh, all kinds of interesting discussions in the evening. 
which you usually did not have on a forum. Uh, usually it would just be the farmer perhaps just talking all night or telling everybody how to how to perceive the world. Here you actually could uh, challenge the perceptions in the room and figure out what what is my opinion about things. An interesting thing about the schools is that they also took the young students to political meetings and they were very adamant about not telling the students what to think or what political views to develop, but to present them with different political views so that they could um, make up their own mind and develop their own opinion. That's an incredibly delicate thing to do. I was going to ask about that. Did these schools, were they affiliated with one side of the, of the, the political spectrum uh, or the other, or indeed are they now in, in Denmark? So the schools today are, of course, very, well, not very, they're different because mm -hmm. the world is different. And um, the, I think we have around 70 or 84 high schools in Denmark. The smaller ones are 40 to 50 students. The bigger ones have maybe 150. They are all of them except one in the countryside. So when you go there, uh that is where you are. You can go into the nearest village and, and buy, you know, a bottle of wine, candy, or something like that. Um, but it it takes a while to get there. Um, it, yeah, so so you're really at the school, and you have no need for, for going anywhere else. It's still five months of focusing on something that you are really interested in. So the school's some of the schools have an all-round program and, and perhaps more of a, a, a cultural or political ideology behind it. So I know one of the schools has a very broad range of topics, like classical Greek, Hebrew, history. Uh, do they teach economics? I think they do. And then guitar and ceramics and some other things that are very sort of... So you can, you can you know, taste a little bit of everything. Uh, and they have a sort of a, a conservative profile, and conservative in a Danish context is pretty much like the Democrats in the United States, I guess. So it's it's not conservative in the, in the U.S. sense. Um, and then the uh, some other schools are dedicated to filmmaking or to music or theater, so that you choose those schools if you really want to explore. Should I pursue an acting career, ac acting education? Should I pursue filmmaking? Uh, should I pursue journalism, and and um, how can I how can I specialize in or dive deeply into something that I'm so interested in um, that I really want to dedicate myself and and uh, five months to it? Uh, so in that respect, they're very different, but they still have the uh, main sort of uh, three ideas behind it. There are no grades. You cannot get a diploma. You can get proof that you spent time there because sometimes when you apply for a university or other jobs later, it's really useful to not just have a blank space in your CV. So you can you can document that you spent time there, but nobody will you know give you any grades for it. Um, it is still very homey. Everybody eats together. The teachers uh, eat with the students and. Uh, most of the teachers actually live at the school or nearby the school, and there's always a teacher present at the school, so there's always something, somebody you can talk to. Um, and so they also have their home and their family around the school, so you get to know the teachers in a different way. And then there's the, the storytelling and the questions asking and the 
combination of the topics and the enculturation. And it's still extremely important that the young students are met with viewpoints and input that surprises and perhaps even offends them so mm -hmm. that they have some pushbacks. That was the German philosopher Fichte, who also wrote in the 1790s, 1790s and the first decade of the 1800s, perhaps even into the 1820s. He said, Bildung comes from Anstoß, from pushbacks. Mm -hmm. So whenever you encounter something that surprises you or forces you to revise the way that you thought things were, that is when Bildung happens. And it especially happens when you realize that, damn it, what an idiot I have been. I thought things were this way, and now I saw they were in a completely different way. I have been uh, holding this completely wrong assumptions assumption for years. And now I realize that I have just, you know, been, you know, suffering from um, a delusion. Or the people that I trusted in childhood told me something about the world that turned out to be wrong. What am I going to do with my love and respect for, say, my grandparents who told me this, or my parents, my mother, who told me this, and it turned out to be completely wrong? How am I going to deal with that? That is the building process. Um, so, so the folk high schools today are very much about challenging uh, the viewpoints that, that the young people bring uh, with them, but also giving them a sense of belonging and community while they're there. And I, <clears throat> before the folk high schools that are for the 18 to 25 year olds, we also have a, uh, a system or a, a kind of boarding schools for the 14 to 18 year olds that pretty much are based on the same ideas, but they do give you a diploma at the end of the, and it's a full year program. Uh, because it's instead of the ninth or the tenth grade in the public schools, uh, but the philosophy behind it, the way that the uh, teachers live at the school, is is very much the same as at the folk high schools. And what happens at both these uh, schools for the 14 to 18 year olds and for the the folk high schools for the 18 to 25 year olds is that when they arrive for the first couple of weeks everybody you know everybody wears the best clothes and the girls wear makeup and the guys style their hair and everybody wants to make a good impression and hope to find a girlfriend or boyfriend there i guess uh, and then after a couple of weeks they kind of relax and after a month everybody's just wearing old t-shirts and, and sweatpants <laughs> and they're like you know 150 siblings and they uh it sounds wrong if I, I say they, they, they eat together, they sleep together, but I mean, a lot of them end up, you know, just hugging and lying in one big pile watching, uh, you know, playing a computer game or having long discussions. And it, it becomes this sort of um, family place where some of these normal boundaries between yourself and other people are gradually disappearing, and it becomes a very sort of tangible physical way of, of being together and you eat together and you do the dishes together and you do your chores together and um, so it, it's uh, for the 14 to 18 year olds and also for many of the 18 to 25 year olds it's the first time that, that they're uh, living away from home and so it's a tremendous building process just with respect to 
my parents are not here, I have to figure this out by myself or by asking somebody I don't know. And and so that can give you some pushbacks and can give you a, a lot of, of uh, challenges. And it can challenge your assumptions. It, it's it's going to challenge your assumptions about how are you going to do the dishes? How are you going to, if you share a room with somebody, I guess everybody who who, who shares a room and has a roommate uh, in, in an American college realizes the same thing. Yeah. Uh, the way that uh, we're used to doing it at home is not the way that everybody else does it. Um, maybe I should uh, pay attention to how the others are doing it because uh, I want to fit in. So, so that is a building process, and, um, and and so that is still there. But of course, the content, the competition from cell phones and television and computer games, is entirely different. Yeah. There's an interesting um, tension or or yeah, complexity, I would say. Um, thank you for bringing up this concept of pushback. Um, it's something I wanted to ask you about. Um, there seems there's an interesting complexity in creating this homey kind of cozy environment um, that goes already back sounds like to Kristen Cole to the very early earliest folk high schools to the present um, and this concept of, of pushback of, of really confronting things that are new different ideas different contexts and I think I also appreciate it in, in other things that I've read from you really even physical experiences like sports are, are, are a part of this building process the pushback of the world and and really literally physical pushback uh, in, in, in the context. And here, the things we do, that also includes, uh, you know, encounters with the weather, with, you know, domestic animals, with, you know, camping trips and things like that. And I guess, can you talk about the, 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 the balance between creating a safe, a literally like physically comfortable space and some of the challenging um, interactions that you're talking about? So I guess the, the homey feeling uh, and the sense of... Uh, mental, uh, cultural, existential, emotional safety is what allows for the intellectual, cultural pushbacks. Um, because if, if you felt intimida- intimidated by the, by the place and didn't really know how to behave and the food was too fancy and there were rules that you could not figure out how to play by, I mean, then you would not be open to having your viewpoints challenged and, uh, and of course I mean it, it's not a constant challenge to people's viewpoints uh, a lot of the education is of course to uh, to build on what what they bring with them but it's also to ask questions about so so why 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 are you thinking like that and why do why are you making those choices <clears throat> and some of the schools are uh, dedicated to sports by the way uh, I had a very interesting experience when I was a, a, a speaker, a guest speaker at one of the uh, folk high schools, and it was one of the sports schools. Um, and the week before me, they had this uh, author, and the teachers were expecting the young people to really be kind of offended by what he was going to talk about. And they had barely any reaction from, from the young people. And they were kind of sort of thinking, okay, so this Lena Anderson, what, what can she possibly say that, uh, that is going to provoke them? This, so the, the title for my presentation was Top 10 Reason for Immigrate, Immigrants Not to Integrate into Danish Culture and Society. And I had not made a, <clears throat> a huge survey. I just asked a, a couple of, or like a handful, uh, 10, 20 people perhaps, of uh, people that I, that I know that have immigrated to Denmark and asked them, what are the barriers 
that uh, that the Danes are you know putting up that uh, prevents you from actually you know connecting with Denmark, being integrated into Denmark, and and, and feeling Danish. And so they listed a number of things, and one of them was uh, the Muslims, of course, said um, we don't know if uh, there is red wine in the gravy. So uh, once they finally get invited back into somebody's private home, they know that the Danes have a habit of, of pouring red wine into to the gravy if, if they serve meat. Uh, and they and they didn't want to embarrass the hostess by by asking if the the gravy the sauce had wine in it. And so that was that was a dilemma. And I was like, that's an interesting dilemma. I never heard about that. So anyway, I listed ten barriers towards uh, uh, integration into Denmark. And that was what I was going to speak about. And so uh, I, I told the young people in the auditorium, so there was 150 of them, that this was what I had done. And I had listed them uh, the, from 10 to 1. And now, now I was going to explain what, what the barriers were. And so this, as soon as I got started on, on the number 10, I could tell that some of them got all fidgety and, and uncomfortable in their in their seat. And as I got to the number 9, the first guy raised his hand and asked this really critical question about, so why why don't they like us? I was like, it's not about the immigrants not liking us. They're just saying that this thing that we do is a barrier for them if they're going to, you know, connect with us. And they were almost creating a riot when I when I got to number the number one. Um, and the teachers had never seen them so angry. And um, it was actually it was actually very funny. So uh, there, I nobody had. I mean, none of us had expected that that my my presentation would have that effect. But um, but it was uh, it was really interesting. And so I, I guess both the teachers and the students got a lot to think about from that. And so so the schools make sure that there are people who uh, who do presentations that that challenge them, uh, that they have guest speakers, but also that the and I, and I think that it it really shapes the pedagogy or the teaching method at the school that there are no exams and no results that you need to produce. Because if you have a history class or a language class or a philosophy class or any kind of literature class, whatever, and for instance, it's the November 8th of uh, 2022 and there is an election in the U.S., the teachers and the students are free to follow the news all day or all evening because of the time difference, and then stay up all night. Uh, you know, bring their uh, comforters and their pillows to the uh, main hall and watch the election on a big screen. Go to bed at four o'clock in the morning, and then the next day uh, everybody discusses what they saw. Uh, so they have the freedom to do that, and I don't know if any of the schools are going to actually do that, but they have the freedom to do it, mm -hmm. and it's not going to ruin their, their tests at the end of the week or anything like that. So it's a different way of approaching education. You can you can really, on the spur of the moment, if there's something that is important uh, that, that raises interesting questions, you can address it and, and you can uh, you can teach around it. Yeah, that really speaks to a living, a living culture. Um, it's one of the phrases comes from Grundtvig, the the idea of a school for life, and uh, I think the response to the things happening in real time. 
Micro College is recorded in the broadcast studios of WDRT Viroqua, 91.9 FM, Driftless Community Radio, on Main Street in Viroqua, Wisconsin. Thanks to Jim and all the folks at WDRT for the support of Thoreau College and the Micro College podcast. So I think the last question uh, I wanted to ask is, um, so the the origins of the folk high school movement, they, they arise out of this formation of a national identity, uh, the sense of, of, of Danishness and the other, the other countries which have had folk schools as well. It was a formational period in that way um, and connected with this sense of what, what is an individual within the context of that nation. Um, I know that many of the, the folk high schools now have very international student bodies. Um, and you know, certainly that's true in what we're doing here. We have students uh, interested in our programs from around the world. How is it different to have a, a folk high school, let's say, which is, which is international, which people, you know, people from, from a kind of a global culture as opposed to a national culture? I mean, it, it's a different time. It's a different age. It's a different, we're in different circumstances and the young people are more or less bilingual Danish and English. Um, so, I would rather, I'd probably rather uh, focus on on whether the teachers uh, speak English well enough because they're a different generation. But I think the, yes, a lot of the schools are focusing very much on uh, on on global issues, um, and they have classes and uh, discussions in English. If they do have an international student body, there are many schools that have it, but not all of them. Um, I also think that a lot of the young people really uh, appreciate to be in a in a school that is Danish with other Danish students so that they can speak their mother tongue and and have that sense of intimacy uh, that comes from speaking your own language. Mm-hmm. And of course, if they have a if, if it is a school with an international student body, the the Danish students will very often speak Danish among each other and and unfortunately, I guess, like the rest of the Danes probably, keep speaking Danish even if there's somebody who, who doesn't understand uh, English uh, in the group. Um, <clears throat> so, because I, I mean, I, I, I just experienced that with uh, somebody from Ukraine who was uh, attending one of the folk high schools. And some of the education, what the educators said, they translated into English, but some of, I mean, she missed a lot of it and eventually she uh, did not stay at the school. So it's not all the schools can do it, but mm-hmm. yes, the focus is, is global. Uh, in a different way than it than it used to be. It is also different post-COVID than, than pre-COVID because there's simply just, uh, and I heard teachers talk about that, they get a different kind of young people after COVID than before COVID. So social skills and just the need to be with other people and connect with other people and perhaps not focus so very much on actually learning or having that transfer of knowledge, but more focus on the um yeah uh Social connecting skills. with other people and meeting other people and learning how other people uh see things and 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 doing things together uh, i i had a group of uh europeans here in copenhagen for the european building day in may and i'd organized a trip actually to Kristen Colt's old school from a uh, schoolhouse from 1851. It's still there on the island of Funen in the middle of Denmark. Huh. And about a mile or two from that, there is uh, the current uh, folk high school by the same name, Ruslinge Folk High School. And uh, it was the first relatively warm day of spring when we went there, May 8th. 
and uh, and some of the uh, schools, the students took us around and gave us a tour in English, and uh, everybody is very self-confident. It was actually some of the 16-year-olds because they also have one of these schools for the 14 to 18-year-olds. So some of the 16, 17-year-olds who, who showed us around and took us to the theater and the dorms and the uh, video editing room and um, and then in the in the middle of the there's a big field in the middle of the school with the building surrounded and there's a big tree and then they had this big inflatable mattress that was like I don't know two feet thick and um, I don't know how many 30 feet long or something and and they were in uh, bathing suits and somebody was there with a water hose and then they watered it down and they ran to it and then they jumped upon it and landed on their stomach and you know slid along the, the whole thing and there was a competition to see who could slide all the way across this sort of inflatable I don't know what you call it mattress it was like a mattress for giants but anyway <laughs> uh, so so uh, it was just this almost paradise of young people just having fun and doing something silly on the first day of spring and you could just sense how that youthful energy uh, had been locked down for so long during COVID and now they were finally you know out in the open and together and could have all this you know silly playfulness uh, going on um, and so so the schools are I mean I would say the way that I have come to define Bildung now is that it is two different kinds of knowledge. One is the horizontal transfer of knowledge, and that's the knowledge that you can actually rather easily transfer from one person to the next. And that is part of the curriculum in the folk high schools for the content there. And it is what our formal school system is really good at. But the other kind of knowledge, which we could then call the uh, moral and emotional depth, a vertical kind of development into your cultural roots and into who you are and your upbringing I mean there's an up in upbringing mm -hmm. uh, the moral development and that that aspect is really strong at the folk high schools and those two things are still there and they're still being combined and so the purpose of going to one of the folk high schools is that yes you learn something there's a transfer of knowledge a horizontal transfer of knowledge from teachers and, and students to other students uh, but but it's very much about connecting with cultural roots, with yourself, with who you are, and and um, and having that moral and emotional development. And um, and when you don't have all kinds of tests and goals telling you what you must learn and what you must be able to do at the end of the month or the end of the semester, then you're free to focus on those feelings on the way. And, and that is where the building happens. Fabulous. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lena, for your work, for your time. Uh, all of our listeners, I really encourage you to, to check out The Nordic Secret and also Lena's most recent books. I cannot hear what you're saying. Um, Metamodernity, Bildung, and Libertism, um, as well as the, the, the Global Bildung Network. And, um, and yeah, wherever she's appearing on uh, podcasts and YouTube, um, Really powerful thinker and speaker, and uh, and thank you for your time today and for pers persevering through our our technical difficulties today. Well, thank you for inviting me.